You're listening to a Dharma talk from Sunday Morning Zen, a program of the Zen Life and Meditation Center of Chicago. So here we are, the last day of the 2021 summer session. It's been a very sincere honor practicing with all of you. And uh, I'm sure that many of you who've been in retreat now for seven days, noticing uh, a different quality that time takes on during the retreat. Explaining is faster or slower, longer or shorter. But the way we, we occupy time in a, a lot more dignified way. Unless, of course, we're trying to let a drama talk or cook lunch, in which case, I'm very pleading with being very frantic. But normally, we're in retreat. I just has a different quality about it. And we are, in a very real way, we're spending our time. We have a limited amount of time. And, uh, thank you so much for spending it here in the Sangha during this retreat. This is one of the practices. Just at this time during the session, we, we always um, begin to slowly emerge from silence. And so this morning, Jerry Zahn pointed out that my, my work was like pajamas, so I Dressed up in the pool again. We always have a lot of fun. Chikan, your sound is a little distant. Your sound is a little echoey and distant. How's audio now? Better? Oh, great. Great. It's, it's a miracle what a microphone can do. So again, it's, it's wonderful you've, you've chosen to spend your time here in retreat, support each other's practice. But, you know, we can't treat this uh, as a way to play hide and seek to get free of our fear and suffering. And of course, even if we wanted to, we can't. It's still present here with us. It's all connected. We all share this heritage of fear and loss. It's right here with us during session for us to unpack divided from her, separated this space or time by these four walls. And um, we touch a very special place during session. It's a place where our intentions align with our actions in the realm of practice. And this isn't an easy thing to manage, right? We had to really make an effort to make that happen. So have you come to appreciate things this week in your practice? Has it been different? Is it things you might like to continue? Because the question is, what makes things different here? It is a magical place for sure, right? But, uh, I'm not sure that explains it all. You know, for one, we focused on a couple of what I'll call life spheres, focused primarily on our spiritual and personal spheres while we were here. And session definitely helps us to be more skillful with our time and practice. We develop a daily regimen. And I say we, right? It was already, it was already done when we got here. We have one present for us. 
And if we got off track, it was very easy. We just stop where we were, turn the light over to the wall or one of the other places it's posted, or if you're participating online, you look online and you know exactly where you need to be in time and space. And so it was easy just to return back to the regimen when we got off track. So things were wonderful when our intentions aligned with our work and we're able to practice. But we stay in this retreat container. We made a joke this morning when we were done with service that we just kept practicing for another couple of weeks. We'd have our service now happen. But uh, we can't do that. Right? We have vocations. We have family, we have friends, we have other responsibilities. So we have to make a choice about what it is that's arisen during the retreat that we want to cherish and protect, that we want to cultivate as we come out of the retreat. And I want to stress we're not talking here about clinging. I know, I'm sure we all know, things are of a nature to change. During retreat, we light our candle from the flame of collective practice together. And as we leave, we want to protect that flame. Regularly trim the candle and maintain it. From time to time, the winds of life are sure are going to blow it out. And we want to be present enough to notice and we're, we're going to come like a candle again. This is wonderful about Sangha. Wonderful about this practice. So it's a big question for all of us. So we take a moment now and just reflect on what we want to nurture that's arisen during this retreat. Who wants to share something? Somebody has something that's arisen during the retreat. It's been special for them. Mm. A basic goodness. Mm. Getting in touch with your sad and tender heart. Anyone else want to share? Even with, even if with perceived distance, I have a, a more profound sense of refuge than I've than I think I've ever had. Some very very beautiful things, beautiful things. So to we talk about we're wanting to to cherish and nurture this part of our practice. Is it worth it? Is it worth the effort to see these things? Do you need to rise? The answer is pretty obvious, right? That's something we'd all like to continue to have. But to do that, it's going to require a change of effort. Change your effort significantly when we walked through the door a week ago. 
And we're going to have to be open and vulnerable to be able to do that, to change that effort. We're going to have to have the willingness and the courage to see ourselves truly and pay a closer look, or take a closer look, rather, at how we occupy time and space. And just how much our actions matter, just how much we matter. The world is often very confused. So vulnerability is a very interesting topic. Firstly, I'm gonna bet a lot of you in your hearts don't want to be vulnerable. I can tell you I'm not frequently pick, raising my hand and saying, pick me, when it comes to this either, right? And it's, uh, it's such an interesting thing because it came up as part of something people would cherish as a part of retreat. And when I think about vulnerability and, and treating that subject, Renee Brown always comes to mind. She does a, a good job at uh, working with vulnerability. I guess it kind of starts with her definition. And she defines it as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. And it kind of rings very similar, right? The things that we practice, that we talk about. We talk about the Zen peacemakers tenet of not knowing. There's the LMC's concept of openness that we treat very significantly during the foundation series. So as a way of really getting in touch with vulnerability, Renee asked folks to come up with examples of what makes them feel vulnerable. And she asked them to complete a sentence as a part of this exercise. And the sentence is, vulnerability is blank. I'll give, you, I'll give you an example. Vulnerability is asking a question during a Dharma talk and not knowing if you'll get an answer. <laughs> right? So what are some other ways you can complete that sentence? Vulnerability is blank. Vulnerability is giving a Dharma talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Right. Or, or wondering not. if you can be okay with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. wondering right. if you can be okay. Right. How else is vulnerability significant? Well, since you guys don't want to play, I brought some answers, right, from, that other people gave to this. So you can see if any of these might fit you. Vulnerability is sharing an unpopular opinion. Vulnerability is standing up for myself. Vulnerability is asking for help or saying no. Vulnerability is calling a friend whose child just died. Signing up for your mom for hospice care. Vulnerability is writing, reading rather, something that I wrote or a piece of art, posting a piece of art that I made. Vulnerability is exercising in public, doing a hula on Zoom. 
Vulnerability is asking for forgiveness. Vulnerability is having faith and trust. When we think about these things, I think we often probably think there's a lot of other things that we'd rather do than some of the things on this list. But I guess the bigger question is, are there a lot of things that we should be doing more than these? It's a big, being open is an effort. It's a big part of our practice. This is actually the union of life and practice. And it's funny because we often think of vulnerability as a weakness. But do these things sound weak? We foster an extraordinary version of the things we're talking about, right? So when folks were asked to talk about how vulnerability feels, like we just talked about what vulnerability feels, how does it make you feel? A lot of comments came through. Anybody want to give one? Vulnerability is fearful. About taking off my mask, hoping the real me isn't too disappointing. <laughs> Not sucking it in anymore. <laughs> I spent a lot of my day. <laughs> Vulnerability is where fear and courage meet. Vulnerability is how it feels like freedom and liberation. That's how it feels, right? Vulnerability feels intensely terrifying and achingly necessary. Vulnerability feels like we're letting go of control. These are very similar to what we understand of our Zen. There was a guy, Kanchen, who used to practice here with many, many years ago. And I remember we practiced hard, well, hard, right? We sat a lot of, a lot of hours in the Zendo when it was over at the house on Humphrey. And I think that there was a friendly competition that arose from it. You know, we'd sit across from each other and sit and see who's going to get up and leave first. <laughs> then we would leave, right? But um, it was funny because we were talking about, Roshi was talking one time about council circle. And Kanshi and I were carrying on about how much we hated council circle. <laughs> I remember Roshi looked at us like, you two idiots just don't get it. And kind of walked out of the room. <laughs> at the time, I didn't know what he was talking about. Well, we're sitting a lot, <laughs> but that's not, that's not the true part of practice, right? So vulnerability feels a lot like being in retreat together, taking a step back and turning around and acknowledging the light within. So we talked about our natural aversion to it, but hopefully, we talked about retreat. We talked about things we like to cultivate. And a lot of things that came up about openness and vulnerability as a part of what we'd like to carry out of retreat. And what gets in the way of this? What gets in the way of having bravery and opening up? Sensei's talk earlier in the week on fear, because it's been fear week here at CUMC. 
had a quote from Trungpa Rinpoche. And he said, one of the main obstacles to fearlessness is the habitual patterns that allow us to deceive ourselves. Ordinarily, we don't let ourselves experience ourselves fully. That is to say, we have a fear of facing ourselves. Pima Chodron builds on this and says and adds, often we prefer to hurt ourselves. It seems to feel better to pursue our habitual patterns than to help ourselves. You may have heard in school that studying hard will be good for you. Your parents may have told you to eat all the food on your plate because it's good for you. There are a lot of people starving all over the world. You're very fortunate to have this meal in front of you. Eat it up. And maybe such advice is helpful. At the time you heard these things, they may have seemed completely unskillful in terms of your state of mind at the time, right? But however, such orthodoxy and expression of discipline may have an element of truth in them. I think she's right. But there's this recurring theme among or around habitual patterns here, habits. And here's the thing about habits. Habits are mindless. Oxford Dictionary defines a habit as a settled or regular tendency or practice, especially one that's hard to give up. <laughs> so we could posit the notion, and I'm sure some people here would like to argue this, some habits are good. And I may very well be willing to concede. I'm ready. I'm ready. As long as anyone can answer this question affirmatively. How many of you have good habits that occupy a majority of your time? <laughs> a good habit that occupies the majority of your time. The fact is you're going to be pretty hard pressed to find good habits that occupy a sizable minority of your time. <laughs> and that's a obsessive compulsive disorder. That's a little bit different here. Yeah. There's a difference. Yes, no, yeah, right. No, but truthfully, if, you know, being cleaning is good, but the truth is we operate mindlessly a lot of the time, right? And I'll give you a few examples here about how time is spent on average, right? How many times per, how many rather, how many hours per year does the average person spend looking for a parking spot, that perfect spot, right? Because nobody just wants to go park. 17 hours, 17 hours per year. We could do the math and look at it over a lifetime, but I have a feeling I'd be pretty disappointed. So that one hits home for a lot of us. I remember hearing that statistic. And so now when I get to a parking lot, I just park the furthest spot and get the walk in, right? But just in case I feel too noble, how many, how many, how much time does the average American spend on social media? <laughs> That's hitting low. Now you're punching below the belt. <laughs> Two hours and 24 minutes. That's 17 hours per week. Or in case you guys are doing math, that's about a, about a part-time job. It's about a part-time job spent serving social media. 
And just in case you think it's passe, watching television, average American still spends four and a half hours per day watching television. And of course, I think for us, many of us think we've evolved. So maybe we're, we have, we spend half as much time at some of these activities. <laughs> maybe someone here is, is gonna tell me, hopefully they haven't binge watched Netflix, right? But the truth is, I think we can acknowledge that even us enlightened souls here often fall into a lot of these time traps, right? We fall into these habitual patterns and they're mindless. So the truth is that habits don't tend to occupy our time in a meaningful way, and certainly in terms of our bodhisattva vow. If they did, if habits did, this would be great, right? We could sit meditation, we'd wake up, and we'd live mindfully ever after. <laughs> no problems, poof, done. But I don't think any of us have had that experience. I woke up this morning, 4 a.m. to get here, and I had to struggle to get past you know, the habit of just wanting to hit that snooze button. I actually had a mild daydream that I was dressing, and I only woke myself up because I couldn't find my belt. So thankfully, I couldn't find my belt in my dream, or I'd probably be still at home sleeping. So you may be asking at this point, what's the issue with my habits, aside from and I don't, you know, I don't see too many issues, right? Aside from them being mainly mindless, right? An obstacle to seeing ourselves clearly and a hiding place where things go rough, right? Not much, right? They're just fine, right? I'm of course being facetious, but there is one more big thing. Our habits tend to occupy time. And let me be very clear. We all have habits. We'll continue to have them during and after this retreat. I'm not talking about your standard run of the mill habits like that. What could be troublesome about habits is how they lull us into a sense of delusion and their uncanny ability to monopolize time. So to be clear, Kyokazan and I, every morning during retreat, sneak in a surreptitious cup of coffee. It's our habit to do so. And there's something in that coffee that tastes uncannily similar to heavy whipping cream. <laughs> because that's a habit that we've cultivated and we do it. And usually about this point in retreat, I have a taste for the world's tallest gin and tonic with lots of lime. And I mentioned gin, I hope. So we have habits right? and we're gonna to continue to have habits, but to temper them and to use our time more skillfully, we also have to have its antidote, which is discipline. I'm gonna give you another quote from an old Buddhist sage. In developing our own self-awareness, many of us discover ineffective scripts, deeply embedded habits that, were, that are totally unworthy of us, totally incongruent with the things we really value in life. We're responsible, that's response-able, to use our imagining creativity to write new ones that are more effective, more congruent with our deepest values and with the correct principles that give our values meaning. Anyone recognize that quote of the Buddhist sage? That's Frank, or Stephen Covey. <laughs> Stephen Covey's quote. <laughs> so while we may, you know, sneak coffee or daydream about cocktails, what I'm really talking about is cultivating what we cherish, creating a discipline around that. And one way to do this is develop a more skillful approach to how we occupy time. 
And to do this, we're going to have to be brave. We're going to have to be vulnerable. And we're going to have to take a good, hard look at ourselves. A. Dogen once said, fearing the swift passage of the sunlight, practice the way as though saving your head from fire. If you use a Dogen quote, so it's officially a Dharma talk now, right? To do this, to do what Dogen's talking about, we have to be fully present. We have to occupy time and space with dignity, being awake. Early in the week, again, during Sensei's talk, we heard a lot about the discipline of the warrior, sila in Sanskrit. Sila can be defined or translated rather as both discipline or restraint. By applying it, we make good decisions in our daily lives, leading to wholesome actions and laying a foundation for practice. That's we make decisions. This is an autopilot. So I think we can all agree that we're occupying time a lot more skillfully during Sashim. Right? Does that make sense to everyone? Why is that happening? I think there's a couple of good reasons there. One is we have a roadmap. We have Sashin guidelines. There's a schedule posted up there on the wall. Minor things, but we all refer to them and use them to, to guide ourselves back to what's important from time to time. And we significantly narrowed our focus. We call them the we call them life spheres, right? The personal and spiritual life spheres. And I want to make it clear, I understand these are just constructs, right? These aren't real. But we create and use constructs around ourselves all the time. Right? You know, there's no true self, the self, the thing that we refer to as self is a fiction, right? But if we get pulled over for speeding and the officer asks for our license and we say vast emptiness, no holiness, things will not go well for you from that point forward, right? And if you're courting a young woman or a young man, and your opening line is, there's no I or you, and this thing you've constructed here is essentially empty. You're going to be a very lonely person. So I happen to have a copy of the schedule. It's up on the wall. And uh, I happen to have a copy of the retreat instructions. And they read a lot, like a recipe book for the life of a warrior. We have references to noble silence. Turning inward, working on your own practice. So limiting our conversation, being mindful about the way we use speech and about the words we use. References to being prompt, to supporting your teachers, following the schedule. Being mindful about your interaction with electronics. Instructions about taking care of yourself, drinking lots of water. About communicating with others if you need help. Instructions on giving yourself a quiet place to sit and do walking meditation. And being sensitive to the people around you. We actually have instructions there to post your daily schedule where it's visual. If you're working from home, 
We've done it for you if you're working here at the center, right? <laughs> Another one about enlisting your children as allies, right? <laughs> Making you clear what's important to you in practice, having them help you. All that in that little instruction document, right, that we didn't think of, but this is a big part of what makes this container so special. We have guidelines to keep our container pure. And if we ever, ever feel unsure about how we're occupying time, you can always return to the schedule and find our way back home again to this present moment. So that's in part what makes retreat work so well. I'm sure Dharma Park talks are a big part too, right? Of cultivating our appreciation for boredom for sure. <laughs> but we really need balance in our lives to be able to stay open, vulnerable, and to be able to manifest our vows in our everyday life. And one thing I'm going to suggest is that we take a look at a few areas. I'm calling them spheres of our life to look at when we're contemplating how we occupy time. And again, as I mentioned before, I know they're constructs, but sometimes constructs are very helpful when it comes to being able to see the, the, the big picture and to be able to kind of grasp things and manifest them in your daily life. And we'll pull these together afterwards. And I'm not going to treat them fully because to do so would require a lot more time than we have here this morning. But I'm going to suggest that there are four areas as we move out of retreat that we look at in the coming days. And the first one is the personal sphere. And there's some core questions here. You know, the key one is, are you taking care of your health and doing things to cultivate wellness? Are you eating right? Are you getting enough exercise? Are you getting enough sleep and rest? Are you cultivating activities that bring you joy? Are you managing the resources at your disposal well and your finances well? Basically, are you doing the things needed to take care of you? The things you need to do to fulfill your bodhisattva vow. I always get a little pang of guilt every time I get on an airplane, they give me instructions on what to do if the plane's crashing. Oxygen masks are gonna fall down. They tell you, put your mask on first. I sit there and think, what if it's my child sitting next to me, right? Of course, we know the answer, we know why. It's important to take care of yourself first. You have to be there to be able to take care of others. And if you don't make time for this, it won't make time for itself. You'll find other things to fill in that void. So the personal sphere is critical. We're talking about creating a good container for your life. The positive concept of another one called the interpersonal sphere. And it's remarkably similar to this personal sphere we just talked about, but it's related to those who are close to you in your life. I'm talking about close family, friends. Are you helping them take care of themselves? 
Are you helping them eat well and exercise? <laughs> Are you encouraging them to do things that cultivate joy? Are you giving up yourself in a way that's consistent with your position in their lives? As a parent or, or around your vows, if you're married. Interpersonal sphere is a big part of the overall harmony that we need to cultivate if we want to continue to take this, these lessons into our life. Next, I'm going to have one called the spiritual sphere. And again, we'll make it clear, of course we know, right? There's no such thing as a difference between the sacred and profane here. But what I mean by this is, are you making time for meditation? Are you seeking out resources to help you grow in your practice? If you have a teacher, are you consulting him or her regularly? Are you making time every day to look past illusions of the self that we weave to see what's at the heart of your true nature? I think also what belongs here is kind of the process we're talking about. Are you spending your time wisely, wisely rather, and skillfully? Are you taking time to reflect on whether that's the case? And lastly, I want to posit the concept of the vocational sphere. And I don't need to take too much time here. A lot of us do it well. <laughs> I'll have to explain it, right? These are the things that you do um, to earn a living or support yourself in your life is one way of looking at it. But um, these are things you do to kind of support the way um, we relate to the world and that we're of service. So for some of us who are retired, which is spectacular, vocationally, the sphere would be um, where you stand in service, right? Without concern for your daily bread and your commitment to the world. For the rest of us, it's understanding how our vocation is of service to the rest of the world and also the demands that are put upon us <laughs> to continue to earn, to continue to keep the other spheres in harmony. Because these four spheres do work together in harmony. If you don't work on these skillfully, I know a guy who may or may not in his young years have done this. He asked me not to use his name. <laughs> but if you focus on earning a living and bringing wealth to your family, and this is your only focus, it can quickly turn into a problem. You can say, well, how could that happen? Well, if you don't focus on the other spheres, things like the personal during the, your pursuit of wealth and fame, right? That small self that you've constructed that isn't very real, I promise you, is going to go on a very real rampage and do whatever it needs to do to meet its needs. And I don't think I need to explain what some of those things might look like, right? But you can imagine poor relationships, addictions. Right? It doesn't just work that way, right? You could get out of harmony by focusing only on the spiritual sphere. And staying in this place, your absorption there could cause a lot of problems for the people that you love. Your interpersonal sphere could suffer, your 
locations fear could suffer. Or if you're out of balance in the self, the personal sphere, and indulging the self. I've met folks like this, and they have very volatile vocational, interpersonal, and spiritual, spiritual lives. So creating harmony among these fears is important. When we sit down every day or moment by moment to cook our lives, we have to bring these things together skillfully to occupy time. Gathering ingredients from the four corners of your life kind of create a healthy plate. And I've created a little sheet to help ease the transition as you exit retreat. If you're online, you can see it at zlmc.org slash plan. But if you're here, I've actually taken the liberty of having this jacket made so you can, with, a, with a copy of it in there. What I was going to tell people is, you know, in here, I've been taking notes about how you've been spending your time. <laughs> <laughs> right here in the street. Of course I have. <laughs> oh, this is a big folder, Sensei. <laughs> I need to grab a few pens. I know this isn't the standard garment, right? Is this a corporate wellness retreat? <laughs> Stephen Covey quotes, I don't get it. Remember, we did talk about Dogen, so we've got that fig leaf on. I don't want to dwell on instructions about this, right? But there's some very good practices here. The first is to deal with the spheres from left to right, top to bottom. You can ignore that center column at first. I'll explain what to do with that. So we're working on the personal, interpersonal, then spiritual, then vocational. Because again, if you don't put your mask on first, you're not gonna have much of an ability to help the folks around you. And I promise you, if the people you've made commitments to in your life, as a parent, as a spouse, as a friend, aren't getting their needs met, it's gonna very quickly, your life is gonna quickly get out of kilter. So as a priest, you would think that my first category would be spiritual, but that's, that's not how it works. That's not how your life works. So when we're talking about our first day out from retreat, which is a Sunday, right? It's important to first place the commitments you've already made, the things you already have on your calendar. Right? And you put these in the appropriate time so you know what you're working with. So you would put them first in the appropriate segment in one of those boxes. And then you put them, you block out that time right in the center column on the calendar. And why do we do that? We do it because it's important that we uh, live up to the commitments that we've already made it's an important part of our practice. So we fill in those boxes and then we block out the time that we've already made commitments for. And then before we get started putting things in the other four boxes, again, starting with the personal, there's a couple of things that we need to call to mind. First is our intention. And a good way to do that is by reciting the Bodhisattva vow to yourself. Creations are numberless. 
I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to transform them. Dharma gates are bounds. I vow to open them. The awakened way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody. And in this way, we have clear sight on how we'd like to occupy. So I think it's very important also, before we get started, to bring to mind the five remembrances. Because I think these are, in a way, a reminder of how important it is to harmonize the spheres well. And what I've done is actually I've put those on the bottom of that little sheet for you. So, Kelly, you listened to the talk earlier on Tuesday, right? What are the five remembrances? Uh, I knew she wasn't listening. I'm of the nature to grow old. I cannot escape growing old. I'm of the nature to have ill health. I cannot escape having ill health. I'm of the nature to die. I cannot escape death. All that is dear to me, everyone I love, are of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. I inherit the results of my acts of body, speech, and mind. My actions are my continuation. So as you cook your life, as you cook the upcoming days coming out of retreat, It's very sobering to keep those at top of mind. So as you're deciding how you're gonna occupy time, you can do it with the right emphasis and priority in mind. These are inconvenient truths for a lot of us, but they can be very beautiful and transformational, especially when we use them skillfully to occupy our time with more dignity. So here we're coming up on the end of retreat. And one wonderful thing we can do before we part ways is to take a few moments and start thinking about day one after retreat. And that's Sunday. Right? So look at that personal column. You just take a moment to jot down one or two things you're gonna to do to take care of yourself. Just take a moment, just come up with two things you're gonna to do to take care of yourself. Anyone wanna share one thing they're gonna to do to take care of themselves? Sleep late. It's <laughs> uh, a good one. Everyone's nodding in agreement. This may be the one that everyone's placed on there. 
Liz is shaking her head. Oh, I don't like plate. Yeah, you actually, I, I, I know that I have that in my notes here, because when we get down there to the spiritual section, we've got something very special everyone has to put in there for tomorrow. <laughs> so I think everyone gets the point on how to do that. Now, think about the people in your life that are close to you, who you've made commitments to, to your friends, family, to your children, to other people you participate in retreat with as we transition out. What are one or two things you can do on Sunday to make these people's lives special? What's an example of one? My daughter is coming, so I'm going to make sure that her room is extra sweet because she's in the middle of this ongoing loss. Yes, I'm very sorry for that loss, but such a wonderful way of doing something special for someone you love. Birthday presents to give to my daughter. I have a feeling some of us probably need to call our parents if they're alive, right? <laughs> or children we haven't talked to, or friends that we haven't talked to sometime, especially during retreat. So as we move our attention now down to the spiritual sphere, what are you going to do to make time for meditation practice? I'll give you a hint. We have an online program called Commit to Sit. <laughs> if you aren't local and you need something. But if you, uh, if you are local, after Meditation at nine tomorrow here at the center. Elizabeth's doing her Jukai or taking Jukai or taking refuge tomorrow. Very excited for her and we'll get to, she'll get to answer affirmatively to a whole bunch of promises for precepts that she's never going to be able to, to fulfill, but it'll be wonderful. And she'll well, get a new Dharma name, which we're excited about. In the words of Shinko, I'll be ignorantly saying yes to everything. There you go. <laughs> Excited about that, so you should all pencil that into that sphere there for nine, for sure. It's an important thing. And tomorrow, you probably won't have much to do in the vocational sphere. Maybe some of us do. Um, I will be coming to work in the morning. <laughs> but uh, it's also a good time to, uh, to kind of plan out your week. And for that, I'll leave it to Mr. Covey. He's very good at helping you plan your vocational sphere. And I know you're probably not finished with this exercise, right? But um, hopefully it's been at least a little eye-opening and elucidating about a way where you might use time a little more skillfully and uh, occupy it with a little more dignity. One thing I wanna add, and this one's very important because the whole system comes crashing down very quickly if you intend to harmonize things. If you don't make a commitment to examine how you use time regularly, by that I mean daily. So that's not a part of your regular practice, right? Then it's just, it will immediately not happen. And a lot of this hinges on that, but it's a spiritual practice for us. Spending some time on how we occupied time today, 
and setting our intentions on how we intend to occupy time tomorrow for moment by moment. So hopefully we're off to a good start. I want you to remember though that every day when we come to meditation and we sit on our cushion, we have distractions, all of us. For many of us, we go right back to the simple direction that we started with all those years ago when we started meditation, right? Things get tough, we get distracted, we return to the breath. No matter how efficient or effective you are at planning, the best made plans always come to naught on some days. That's not the important part. It's that if you find yourself distracted, just gently return to your intentions and work with it just like you do work with your breath. This is our lives. It's the biggest koan that we'll ever work with. Perhaps the really the only one. <laughs> There's so much wonder and to be had by working skillfully with it. So I want to thank you this morning for your time <laughs> and your attention. I very sincerely appreciate practicing with you and hope that you won't be strangers to the center after the session is over. It's for the virtual folks too as well, the people who are here. It's wonderful to be able to see everybody in practice in person. We have a few minutes left. We do, yes, we do. Um, so if anyone has any clever anecdotes, witticisms, Roshi's usually good for a joke or two, or for that matter, questions. I don't know what an antidote is. Is that, is that a story? Hmm? What's an antidote? An, a, 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 what did you say? An antidote, like a clever story. Have any clever stories, but I do. I do want to uh, say one thing about we're coming to the end of the retreat. We are having a council circle tonight at seven. You're all invited to. But you are coming. You've been sitting intensively, and you're in a dilated state, which is which is a slightly altered state of consciousness. You need to be aware of that, so that you stay safe as you come out of retreat. If you're driving a car you're you know, in a public space, you need to be aware that you're opened up and you need to be very mindful of that so that you uh, take, care, take good care of yourself, hydrate, um, all of that. And we always say this at the end of the retreat, it's important to be aware that you are, you're in a state of samadhi, it's dilated. This will not last forever. This is going to, you're feeling, uh, you might be feeling really grounded and mindful right now in a week, a lot of this samadhi will dissipate and uh, you return to your ordinary life. So this is our practice is to do these kinds of deep retreats and clarify our lives and then come back. And this is a wonderful talk this morning, Shikan, just wonderful uh, about talking about how to integrate um, our practice into our everyday life, into our relationships, our work, 
The one thing I would say about habits that I think is very interesting, and we are all creatures of habits for sure. We talk in the in the foundations about when we're talking about neuroscience, the um, the uh, default mode in the brain is uh, right up here, and uh, we know that the default mode is a, is an active place in the brain that is basically responsible for the voice in our head, me. It's always talking about me, mine, me, mine, I, whatever. And we all know this voice, we're very familiar with it. One, one reason why people actually have habits is if you're busy doing like, a, I don't know, a video game, for that moment that you're doing the video game, the, that voice in your head is dampened down. And I think we may not even realize it, but the voice in our head makes us crazy much of the time. So when we're sitting in a retreat like this, we've dampened down. One of the reasons why practice is so important, mindfulness practice to pay attention, is that we're, we're dampening down that voice in the head and we're starting to be present to what's here. And so one of the reasons why people have habits is because that voice in the head is driving them crazy. And when they're busy doing a habit, watching TV or the voice in the head gets dampened down. And so then they don't have to deal with the, uh, the suffering of that. So anyway, that's, that's my, my only thing. And, and thank you, Shikhan. It was a wonderful talk this morning. Really nice. Thank you. Everyone be safe, please. So retreat's not over. We still have the rest of today, but um, I look forward to seeing everyone in meditation and council this evening. Julie, what do we have next? Um, prepare for lunch. What time do we return? You're muted. I'm sorry, Roshi, you're muted. Uh, I don't know if anyone is sitting in the Zendo this afternoon. If they are, it would be at three o'clock, but most of us are probably resting or doing the practice of immediacy. I'll be painting, so I won't be there. But you could come back and sit at three. Or okay. Uh, I, I'm just not sure if anyone's going to be there or even if the oh. That's not an issue. I missed the sutra reading because the schedule says 4.30. Is it at 4 or 4.30 today? 4.30, but we usually start at 4.25, come a little early. I think we no problem. earlier the other day. And then the council tonight is at 7. And I strongly advise all of you to come to council. It's a wonderful opportunity to connect, and uh, it's very heartfelt. Wonderful. Thank you. Right. See you later. Bye, Dan.